Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you. Good to be with you uh, as we continue in our summer uh, sermon series, The Words We Use, How God's Word Shapes Our Words. And we've been looking at the words we use with God, the words we use with each other, and the words that we use with people outside the faith. And today we are in part four of Words of Witness, uh, words we use with those outside our faith. And specifically, we're looking at the words of the gospel. And so I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to begin by uh, answer, uh, asking three questions, and then we'll unpack these questions this morning. The first question is this, what is the gospel message? What is the gospel message? And then the second is, how is that message communicated in the New Testament? And the third is, well, how does understanding points one and two, uh, how does this help us share the gospel more effectively with others. So that's what we're going to, those are the questions we're going to answer this, uh, this morning. Now, someone has said, and I don't know who that someone is, uh, some people say the someone was St. Augustine, others say it was uh, St. Jerome, but someone way back, way back when said that the gospel is like a pool, it's shallow enough for a child not to drown in, but deep enough that an elephant can swim without ever touching the bottom. In other words, the gospel is simple enough that a child can understand it, but it's so profound that the greatest theological minds can never completely grasp it. Now, a generation ago, evangelical Christians agreed on a simple gospel, which went something like, um, God created you and wants to have a personal relationship with you, but your sins have separated you from God. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment uh, that your sins deserved, but good news is he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, proving that he could forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. So if you turn from your sin and trust Jesus for salvation, you'll be forgiven, you'll be given eternal life, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, and that is absolutely true, absolutely to every single point is true. But as I said last week, those four statements are not the gospel, but they're a way of sharing the gospel. And I preached the gospel that way for close to 40 years. I presented the gospel that way one-on-one -on -one to many people over the years. And I'll continue to use that method of sharing the gospel when it's appropriate to do so. But again, uh, those four points are a method of sharing the gospel, but they're not the message of the gospel. Last week, I put it this way, we must not confuse a method of sharing the gospel with the message of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is not a formula. It's not just a list of propositions. It, it, it can be presented like that, but the good news isn't simply an impersonal statement of Bible facts. So the question, our first question is, what is the gospel message? And here's my working definition. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, what he did for us, and how it changes our lives. What he did for us and how it changes our lives. How his death, Jesus' death and resurrection intersect with your life. How the gospel makes a difference in your life. How the gospel sets you on a whole different path, uh, a path of healing and restoration and forgiveness and freedom. Real life, life to the full. Now, many years ago uh, in our church, uh, there was a family, and they befriended uh, a young woman who had come out of a very difficult background, 
of uh, drug uh, addiction and childhood sexual abuse from her own family members. And this young woman started attending our worship services with this family, and she was very shy. She was very skeptical. I mean, she had heard news stories about abuse in the church and that kind of thing, so she wasn't sure about any of it. But over time, this family loved her into coming to know Jesus. She came to Christ not through the usual process of believing and then belonging, but through the process of belonging and then believing, which, by the way, is one of our main cornerstone values of our student ministry. And you'll see this on T-shirts. If you walk around here long enough, you'll see somebody wearing a T-shirt with that on it. Now, that's what happened to this young woman. She belonged and then she believed. She was welcomed and loved into a new family. And in the midst of that, she heard the good news about what Jesus had done for her. And she saw how the good news was lived out in this family's life. She put her faith in Jesus and he set her free from guilt and shame by giving her a brand new life in the family of God. Now, that's how the gospel first broke into the world. Uh, John puts it this way and at the very beginning of his letter first John he writes this that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we've seen with our eyes which we've looked at and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life the life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and it has appeared to us we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Three times John essentially says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard and touched. In other words, we are telling you what we have personally experienced. And what was that? That in and through Jesus, We've received eternal life, and he says, that's what we proclaim to you, and that's what you're, we are inviting you into with us. You see, to share the gospel with clarity and power, the clarity and power it really deserves, you have to see how your story has become a part of the gospel story. You need to understand how the gospel has intersected your story and how it can intersect other people's stories. And that's what John is talking about. Now, let's break down that definition I just gave you um, a, a little bit more, down one more level. First of all, the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel message says something about who Jesus is, what he did for you in his life, death, and resurrection— what he promises to do for you if you put your trust in him, and what he will do in the future when he returns to set right all that's wrong in this world. Now, when that, that is a summary outline. So when you read the Gospels and the New Testament letters, you will find that this is the summary outline of the good news story about Jesus. And contrary to what some scholars will tell you, it is a summary that all New Testament writers agree on. It's not articulated all in one place or all in one passage, but you can easily put it together from what's written down for us. Now, I want to show you that. And by the way, everything I'm about to say, I've included in the notes, so you don't have to scramble to take notes on this. The sermon notes this week are longer than any of them that I've ever done because I'm going to cover quite a bit of content 
And I, don't want you, I want you to listen, take it all in, and not have to worry about writing it down. You can get it later in a PDF form. Okay, so here's the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel according to the gospels. Uh, first, who is Jesus? Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, Mark 1.1, the Savior of both Jews and Gentiles, Matthew 28 and Luke 2, the one who, has, who was in the beginning with God and who was God, John 1, but Jesus left his place in heaven and became one of us, John 1.14. Second, what did Jesus do? Jesus died in our place as a substitutionary ransom for the many, Mark 10, 45. And in this life, he conquered the demonic present age with its sin and evil, Mark 1 and 2. And he set people free to enjoy life with God. What does Jesus promise those who trust him? Well, Jesus promises forgiveness, Luke 24, and abundant eternal life, John 3, 16, to all who turn from their sin and trust him as their savior. And he promises that we will not come under the condemning judgment of God, John 5, 24. And fourth, what will Jesus do in the future? Matthew tells us that there's gonna be a renewal of all things, that one day Jesus will return to renew this broken world and set right all that's wrong with it. That's the gospel according to the gospel writers. Now, the apostle Paul preached the same good news. Who was Jesus? Jesus was the promised messianic king, the son of God, who left heaven, coming to earth as a servant in human form. Romans 1, Philippians 2. What did Jesus do for us? By his death and resurrection, Jesus atoned for our sin and secured our justification by grace, not by works. 1 Corinthians 15 Ephesians 2. What does he promise those who put their faith in him? We are justified, declared right with God by faith, not works. Romans 5, Ephesians 2. And we are no longer under the condemning judgment of God. Romans 8, 1. What will Jesus do in the future? When Jesus comes back, he'll judge the world in righteousness, Romans 2, 16. And he will renew all creation and give us new resurrected bodies, Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. Now, by the way, this fourth point is the one that gets left out of most gospel presentations, the one about Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom. And I was gratified that most of the songs we sang about included that, like how great thou art, talked about when Christ returns. It's right there. But think, the gospel is not just what Jesus does for you in this life. It's the good news of what he's going to do for you and the whole world when he returns. And the gospel story is not complete without that ending. So contrary to what some people might say, there's one true gospel message taught by all the New Testament writers, meaning the central message of the gospel of the kingdom found in the synoptic gospels and the gospel of eternal life is taught by John and Paul's gospel of justification by faith in Jesus, all the same gospel, all the same gospel. It's one message, listen, said in different ways in order to best intersect and connect with the different backgrounds of the author's intended audiences. Now, Tim Keller summarizes the one message of the gospel in this way. He says that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplished salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment into fellowship with him, and one day he will return to restore all of creation 
in which we will enjoy our new life together with him forever. I think that's pretty good. One more time. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplished salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin and into fellowship with him. And one day he will return to restore all of creation in which we will enjoy our new life together with him forever. That, or something very close to it, is the gospel message in a nutshell. And that gospel message comes through loud and clear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and Peter, and all the New Testament writers. Now, of course, no summary says everything that you can say about a subject, and no doubt some of you Bible scholars and Bible nerds are saying, but he left this out, or he left that out, or what, he didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit. What about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, 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 all right, I hear you. This is a summary, and the summary doesn't tell you everything. A summary simply helps you see the main points, and the main points are these. The gospel message is the good news about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for you in his life, death, and resurrection, what he promises to do for you if you put your faith in him, and what he's going to do for the whole world when he comes back. Now, let's look at the second part of that definition. The gospel message is the story of what Jesus did for us. Now, here's the second part. And how it intersects with our lives. Now, theologians talk about salvation accomplished and salvation applied, meaning what Jesus accomplished for us through his death and resurrection is applied to us when we put our faith in him. So going back to what John said, he said those first believers saw, heard, and touched the word of life, Jesus. And, and, and that word of life, Jesus, met them at every level of their lives. In other words, Jesus moved among them and his life touched their lives in many different ways, giving them many different gospel stories to tell and many sides of his glory to be amazed by. They had personal experience with Jesus that intersected their lives in profoundly powerful ways, listen, and that enabled them to share the gospel in profoundly powerful ways. You with me? They personally experienced Jesus at every level of their life, so they talked about the one gospel in more ways than one. What do I mean by that? They talked about Jesus in concrete, real-life ways, listen, using metaphors and images and word pictures familiar to the hearers and the readers that help different people connect to the gospel truth in different ways. Now, too often when we read the New Testament, many of us tend to focus pretty much only on theological propositions and Bible statements of fact. But for the writers of the New Testament, they were... They were painting pictures of the gospel with vibrant images of who Jesus is and his saving work in our life. Like, like if you were to say the word Savior, what is a Savior? Well, to the Jews, if the Jews heard the word Savior, they would think of, of God whose mighty, outstretched, powerful arm had led his people, Israel, out of uh, bondage from Pharaoh and out of Egyptian slavery. That's what the Jew would think of. If you said Savior to a Greek audience, they would imagine a semi-divine hero figure coming to the rescue. So the gospel truth that Jesus is our Savior would conjure up different mental images based on the backgrounds of the hearers. So the writers of the New Testament took up word pictures and images and metaphors that intersected 
the cultural backgrounds of the readers, and that sets up the second question. And that my second question is, how was the one gospel message communicated in the New Testament? How was it communicated? So you can turn with me to Ephesians 1, uh, or uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen this morning, but uh, Ephesians 1, which I'm going to be unpacking in more detail in about four weeks when we start our study in the book of Ephesians. But I want you to see how Paul paints several different word pictures to show us how uh, the work Jesus accomplished for us is applied to our lives. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with, the pleasure, with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he has lavished upon us. So as Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians, he is absolutely awestruck. He is in awe of all the spiritual blessings that have come to us in Jesus and the salvation that he has gifted us. And he, he articulates these spiritual blessings kind of as an art gallery of word pictures and images and metaphors that he used used to describe for what we received when we came to Christ. For example, look at the very first picture that Paul puts in the gallery. He says the Father has predestined us for adoption. Now, adoption is the very first word picture he paints for us to help us, to help us see and hear and touch the reality of the blessing of our salvation. And it's a great image, isn't it? I mean, adoption is warm, it's welcoming, it's a caring image. It conjures up a picture kind of like, like this. And I know many of you know firsthand the joy you felt when you welcomed a new baby into your family. I mean, in some ways, it was like you loved that baby before it was even born. You loved that baby while you were waiting for it to be born. And you were overwhelmed with joy when you welcomed that child into your family. And Paul says, that's what the gospel of your salvation is like. It's like adoption. Now, I know we all get, we get hung up over the word predestination. And we focus on distilling out and debating exactly what that word means. And I'm not saying that that's not important. But I am saying that the word predestined is a brushstroke helping to paint the picture of adoption. And adoption is the focus, not predestination. That's not the only picture in the gallery. Paul says we also have redemption through his blood. Same salvation is being described, but now from a different angle. He says we've been redeemed, we've been purchased, ransomed, out of a very bad situation. Like in some people's minds, they would immediately think of Israel being rescued from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. In other people's minds, they would think about a slave whose freedom is purchased and he's set free from his chains. In somebody else's mind, they would be thinking of someone who has been taken captive or kidnapped and a ransom is paid for their release. Peter puts it this way. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life 
that you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb being without blemish or spot. But even that image of redemption is insufficient. It has to be expanded. So Paul keeps hanging pictures in the gallery to show us that redemption is also described as forgiveness. Another word picture of the spiritual blessings we've received in Christ. You see, forgiveness is an accounting word. The Jews had used this picture for a long time to talk about sin. Sin meant you owed God big time. But forgiveness meant that God releases you from that debt and you owe him nothing but love. So do you see this? In Ephesians 1, it's like an art gallery full of word pictures that Paul paints for us to help us see how the salvation we've received in and through Jesus has all kind of touch points in our life. Adoption, redemption, and forgiveness are not just words. They're word pictures of how the gospel intersects our lives in a personal way. They're not just theological terms. They're life-giving, life-changing images packed with meaning. And, and, and they are some of the words that the gospel uses to help us see how what Jesus has accomplished for us is applied to us. And for Paul, it's like one word is insufficient. So he has a rich gospel vocabulary that's like taking us into this art gallery of gospel word pictures. But when taken together, they all help us understand the one gospel and the one life-changing event of trusting Jesus and how it touches our life in all kinds of different ways. It's like, it's like the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us are simply too big for one word or one word picture to contain. So Paul needs to walk us down a whole art gallery full of pictures with each picture telling the same gospel story, who Jesus is, what he did for us, and how it applies to our lives. But each picture also gives us a different angle of the gospel. Again, that when taken together gives us a more complete picture of the work that God has done for us in Christ. And there are a whole lot more of these words, these metaphors and images and word pictures. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named uh, Neil Livingston, and it's entitled Picturing the Gospel. And I have to tell you up front, this book has informed and shaped a lot of what I'm sharing with you this morning. And Neil has a chart in the back of his book that lists out nine gospel images or word pictures that are broken into three groups. And I'm going to put those on the screen. You don't have to take notes. They're all in the sermon notes, okay? So just sit back and go, all right, I don't have to take any notes. All right, right. So he begins with three images of new life. The first image is life, eternal life. In Christ, God has given you what is really life, new, abundant, eternal life. Adoption or sonship, in Christ, you're welcomed into God's family. Kingdom, in Christ, you've been called into a whole new world order. And these three images help us see what we're saved for. Abundant eternal life, membership in the family of God, and citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now the next three are images of mercy and restoration. So you have, re- you have uh, the word picture of justification, that in Christ you have been declared right with God, you have been declared not guilty before God. Forgiveness, in Christ God has wiped out the debt of your sin. Atonement, by sacrificing himself for us, Jesus has taken away our sin. 
And these three images help us to see what we're saved from. These word pictures show us how God has cleared the way for us to know him by dealing with our sin. Then there are three images of deliverance. Salvation. In Christ, God has rescued you from judgment and given you new life. Ransom and redemption. Jesus has bought your freedom at a great price, the price of his own life, his own precious blood. And freedom in Christ, God has set you free from anything and everything that binds you. And these three images help us see what or who we are saved by. We're saved by a hero, Jesus, who rescues us from sin and death and hell and the forces of spiritual evil in this world. We are saved by our Savior Jesus who laid down his life for us. And we are saved by our Savior who came to set the captive free both now and forever. So you see how that these word pictures are, are pictures, they're all pictures of the amazing things that God has done for us in Christ. And there, like I said, there is even more, more word pictures like this hanging in God's gospel gallery. It, words like inheritance, which Paul goes on to talk about in Ephesians chapter one, or the, the, the metaphor of light, the metaphor of reconciliation and being born again. So how is the gospel message communicated in the New Testament? It's communicated with many different vibrant metaphors and images and word pictures that intersect people's lives at their point of need. New Testament scholar Leon Morris calls these gospel images our multifaceted salvation, which is infinitely satisfying. I like that. Our multifaceted salvation, which is infinitely satisfied. Now, these nine images are all words of profound, inexhaustible theological depth. But they're also word pictures that a 10-year-old can see and understand. So, to our final question then, how does understanding all this help us share the gospel more effectively with others? Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, these are all words that you've heard and words that you know, but you probably haven't thought about these words as words of witness. That's what I'm talking about this morning. I'm saying all these word pictures are words of witness. They are, these are words of witness because in, in these kind of word pictures, we find language about family and relationships and a connection and reconciliation. We see words about freedom from addictions, release from oppression, and becoming a part of God's new world order. Here's how Neil Livingston puts it. He says, too often we let the gospel shrink down to one flat outline and a story about what happened to us a long time ago. And then we wonder why we nor our friends are excited about it. But if we could see all these amazing pictures of what Christ has done, we'd realize that there's a lot more good news in the Bible and a lot more good news in our lives than we ever thought. You hear that? More good. If we could see these pictures, take them in to us in a deep, profound way, there's more good news in our lives than we ever thought. Now, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how you came to Christ. How did the gospel intersect your life? What about the gospel grabbed your attention? What about the gospel drew you to God? 
Was it wanting to go to heaven when you die? Was it wanting to have your sins forgiven? Was it wanting to become a part of a family, God's family that really cared for you and you wouldn't be lost and alone anymore? Was it having the burden of guilt and shame that you were carrying? Was it having it removed? Was it wanting, uh, was it wanting to put your old life, your empty life behind you and start again with God? Was it that you were trapped in a bondage in bondage to a sin pattern that you couldn't escape and you wanted to become free? Was it that you felt lost with no meaning or purpose in your life? What was it? What drew you to Jesus? And I'm sure there's lots of different stories. They're all gospel stories, but here's my point. What you, what you have seen and heard, what has touched you deeply can be a starting point of a conversation with someone stuck in the same place as you. Someone who may be dealing with the same issues that you had. Like, 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 let's say that way back you were a rebellious teen on drugs and God saved you from all that. Or maybe you were raised in a Christian home, but at some point you realized that you had absorbed your parents' faith, but your faith had never become personal. You didn't have a personal faith. So at some point, maybe you, through hanging out with a group of new friends who were really serious about following Jesus, God showed you where you were missing the mark. And you made your own profession of faith as a result. Now, these are all gospel stories of our past. And they're great stories. And they're life, obviously, they're life-changing stories. All of us, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you got a story like that. But what I'm saying is your past story is what Neil, Neil Livingstone is saying too. Your past story is not the only gospel story you have to tell. As I've said many times, the gospel is not just the way into new life. It's the way that we live out our new life in Christ on a daily basis. For example, I know this never happens to any of you, but uh, I became, not too long ago, I became really angry about something, and I said something that I shouldn't have said. And this is what happens when you preach on the words you use. I mean, you just open yourself up uh, for your words to come back to bite you. So... Um, I was feeling totally crushed by my sin, overwhelmed with guilt and shame because I said something to a person that I really care a lot about. And so I asked for forgiveness and, and they graciously forgave me, but I had a hard time letting it go. I had a hard time forgiving myself. And as I was up in, the, in my game room study thinking about this, it was like God came to me as a father and he gave me a fresh experience of his forgiveness and grace. He reassured me that he was not going to give up on me and that he would continue to chip away at those rough edges until uh, as a part of his making me more and more like Jesus. Now, I grieved over my sin, but I rested in God's forgiving grace. And I was encouraged by the fact that he wouldn't give up on me. Now, what was that? What happened there? I mean, it wasn't some generic God moment. No, no, no. It was a present experience of the gospel a present experience of what Jesus won for me at the cross. It was the promises of the gospel coming true for me in the present. You see, the, the, the Bible's gospel imagery helped me understand what happened, and God came to me like a father. And he treated me like a son. And instead of guilt and shame weighing me down, Jesus set me free from all of that. And I felt eternal life bubbling up in me. 
And seeing all these different images of the gospel, it shows me all the ways that God works in my life now, today. It helps me see that all my God stories are really gospel stories. Gospel stories that I can share with people to tell them how God is alive and how he can be alive in their lives as well. And I don't know about you, but I find that infinitely satisfying. Listen, we have more gospel stories to tell than we realize. More gospel stories than simply the one gospel story of when we came to Christ. And that means, listen, it means that we are walking gospel art galleries for the people we rub shoulders with every day. Walking gospel art galleries. Listen, every one of those nine gospel word pictures intersect your life every day. You experience the life that is really life. Life lived in relationship with God every day. You experience the reality of adoption. God is your father. You are his beloved child. You will never not be your heavenly father's child. You live in that reality every day. When the world is dark and evil and things seem hopeless, you have the hope of kingdom come. Jesus will come back. He will set up his kingdom on earth and he will set right all this wrong in the world and you will one day live in that kingdom. You live with that hope every day. You live at peace with God knowing that you have heard God's final judgment, uh, final verdict of the judgment day. Not guilty by reason of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You live in that good news every day. Every day you live without guilt and shame, knowing that because of Jesus, God's wiped out the debt of your sin and you owe him nothing but love. Every day you live free in Christ because your freedom has been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Folks, this is good news. It's present day good news, present day gospel. And do you see, one or more of these images drew you to Christ And they're also the ways that you hear and see and receive the touch of Jesus in your present. And here's my point. They're all ways that you can share the gospel with excitement and deep conviction as God gives you opportunity. Let me say it this way. Understanding the Bible's art gallery of gospel images is the key to knowing Jesus personally and making him known in ways that are personal to those with whom we share. It's the key to going deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Not just thinking that Jesus saved you, but Jesus welcomed you into his family. You're his father. He's bought you off the auction block. I mean, all of these things, they're present realities. We need a gospel vocabulary that is as multifaceted as what is presented to us in Scripture. Because the fact is, the more personal, the more impactful the gospel is to you, the more personal and life-changing it'll be for those to whom you speak. These are words of witness. Gospel word pictures are words of witness. These are God's word that shape our words. Now let me give you a couple examples of words of witness and we'll be done. Let's say you find yourself talking to somebody who comes out of a religious background most, most often, people with religious upbringing can easily understand the idea of sin 
as a violation of God's moral law. So the law can be explained in such a way that they realize they fall short of it. And with a person like that, Jesus and the salvation he offers can be presented as our only hope for forgiveness of sins and pardon from guilt. And that has been and it still is a very effective way of sharing the gospel with people who come out of some kind of religious upbringing. But people... um, there's, most of the people that we rub, rub soldiers with, so shoulders with every day, they're not, they didn't grow up in a church. And so what do you do with people like that? Well, if you talk about sin as breaking rules and sleeping with your boyfriend, they just look at you and said, say, who, who made up those rules? I mean, those may be your rules, but they're not my rules. End of conversation. So instead of telling them that they're sinning because they're sleeping with their boyfriends or girlfriends, you can talk about sin as building your identity and self-worth on anything other than God. You can talk about sin as idolatry. Now, you might not want to use that specific term, but that's what we're talking about. You can put the emphasis not so much on doing bad things, but on making good things into God's making good things into ultimate things. And you can explain how they're dishonoring God because they're looking to their romances and their career and their success to give their lives meaning. You can explain how they're trying uh, to give themselves what they should be looking for that can only come from God. And you can explain how all that leads to anxiety and obsessiveness and envy and resentment. Interestingly enough, most secular people don't push back very hard on that because they know the direction their life is, he- is headed. And then, then Jesus can be presented and his salvation can be presented, not so much at this point as their only hope for forgiveness, but their only hope for true freedom. Now, I mentioned earlier that most often the end of the gospel story gets left out of most gospel presentations. But the fact is that one day Jesus will come back and set right all that's wrong in this world. And that can be a great entry point for the gospel with people like this. In other words, the coming kingdom of God can be the headline of the gospel for people like this. Yes, I mean, sometimes it's best to talk about Jesus' salvation as the gospel of eternal life, to talk about life with God in a more individually focused, personal way as the gift of free grace and not works. But sometimes... When you're talking to very secular people who feel really good about their personal life, it's not always the best approach to talk about personal problems. And I find that people like this are more interested in world-sized problems. Pain and suffering and war and violence and racism and poverty and injustice. And folks like this tend to respond better to the gospel of the kingdom. So instead of talking about the gospel in terms of God, sin, Christ, and, and, and faith, it may be better to speak gospel in terms of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Not that you'd use those words necessarily, but talking the scripture to them something like this. In the beginning, God created a very good world, and it was an amazing world where people and God lived together and enjoyed one another and they lived together in peace and harmony. But by turning from God, we lost that world. And our sin unleashed forces of evil and destruction so that now the world we live in is not the good world God created. We live in the messed up world that we created by thinking we could run things better than God. 
And the good news is, though, God didn't give up on us. Jesus came into the world, and he died as a victim of injustice and as our substitute, taking on himself the penalty of our evil and sin. And one day, he's going to come again, and he will set right all this wrong in the world, and he will judge the world and destroy all death and evil without destroying us. And his kingdom in this world will be what God always wanted from the beginning, a kingdom of peace and harmony between God and people and between people of all races and nationalities. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And there are a lot of people who will not turn you off if you go down that road first. Now, in the book, Neil Livingston talks about a conversation he had with a young woman named Marissa. And Marissa had a great job. She enjoyed a great deal of success. She was fit and healthy, and she felt like her life was put together and things were going really well. But as they were talking, it came out that she was really troubled by all the pain and suffering and violence and evil and corruption in the world. And she said something. She just bursted out like, we need to change everything. We need to change the way whole systems and whole nations work. It's all broken. And so Neil started right there. He talked with her about the new kingdom that God was bringing about and how, how, uh, how God has a worldwide salvation to offer. And he told her how that because of Jesus, that God was inviting her to be a part of that new kingdom agenda in this world. She had never heard anything like that before, and she was interested in knowing more, and it led to other conversations. The gospel of the kingdom was the starting point of the conversation. Now, but in future conversations, she would need to understand that being a part of God's new kingdom means trusting Jesus in such a way that she would give up self-rule and bow the knee to Jesus, and she would need to understand what he did for her in his death and resurrection, and she, that she needed to trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. I mean, you do have to embrace the whole story of Jesus to become a follower of Jesus. But no one gospel word picture gives all the multifaceted aspects of the whole gospel the same emphasis. And that's okay. Summaries don't say everything there is to say. But we can invite people to enter the story in different ways using these gospel word pictures as entry points because different people feel the effects of sin and brokenness and evil in our world today. They feel that in different ways, and Jesus meets people where they are. And all these, all these gospel word pictures that, uh, that we've looked at today, adoption and redemption and forgiveness and the other six I mentioned, Moses put it well. He said, these are not idle words for you. These words are your very life. And they are God's words that shape our words of witness. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the multifaceted salvation that you have given us that truly is infinitely satisfying. Oh God, make us to be a people who are so amazed by the reality, by both the simplicity 
and the depth of this great salvation that Jesus won for us through his death and resurrection. May it recapture our hearts so that you are truly our first love. And then with that awe and that conviction and that excitement, give us opportunities to speak into people's lives the word they need to hear that might draw them to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.